Thank you very, very much uh, for inviting me. And it's always, it's always, it's always a dumb deal following a journalist who's been everywhere. Um, uh, <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I spend most of my time in, in uh, uh, archives with papers. Um, not a dangerous life, though they do fall down. And, and, <laughs> and grand old men uh, have very strong views about how their, how their, how their, how history will account for them. I really wanted to try and use. Um, uh, I wanted to try and use this time really to, to go into some of the problems uh, in the report that the BBC encountered in reporting of the conflict in Northern Ireland a long time ago. Um, really, because that's what I think history does. It gives you somewhere to think and look at, and actually try and conclude some lessons from. Um, but also, it's very, it's a, it's a very vivid set of problems. And Northern Ireland does raise for us British, I think, the most vivid moment since the Civil War of a kind of a conflict which is extremely um, passionate, nasty for us on our terms. If you um, factored up the um, number of people that were killed in Northern Ireland, which is only 3,000 in terms of the population, uh, it's in terms of New York, it's 80,000. Right, so you're looking, you're looking at actually quite significant casualties in a very small community, um, in which everybody knew each other. It, it, it has all of that sort of aspect. And I want to raise two problems at the start. Of course, we are all concerned with um, issues about irresponsible journalism, which um, heightens and exaggerates and leads to further conflict. You've really only got to look at the, at the Daily Mail um, on the day before the AV referendum to see what very nasty viciousness can do. Um, uh, in, and there are real issues, I think, about um, the tenor and manner of reporting, and I'm not going to, this is, I'm sure, this, I hope this is off the record, this is off the record. Uh, I have a particular horror of Frank Gardner, who always makes the world look as if it's very frightening, um, which doesn't get, uh, I think, it gets risk in the wrong place. Um, so there is that on the one hand, and the, on the other hand, there is the essential truth of journalism, which it's very difficult, I think, for people outside journalism to understand, which is the morality of journalism lies in it being immoral. It's an amoral craft which is dedicated to reporting at its best, at its the very pantheon of journalism, is telling the truth in as far as it can be ascertained. And that's, that's not like the pantheon of all sorts of other um, uh, 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 crafts. And that it's there not to be on one side or the other. But it can be hard and decide that one side is being um, uh, reported worse or that true untruths are being told. But it's not there in a sense to, 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 to try and intervene at its best. It's there in a sense to tell us what's happened. Um, this becomes very vivid when you look at the history, which I'm going to try and account for it, uh, briefly, of the BBC's attempts to report Northern Ireland. The BBC in Northern Ireland, as the conflict breaks out in the late 60s, is committed effectively to one side. It's a unionist organisation on the high 
whole not listened to by the Catholic population of uh, Northern Ireland, on the, with not a single Catholic employed in it. Um, the newsroom is Catholic-free, uh, um, and it had. It wasn't that it wasn't aware of tensions growing in Northern Ireland, but it, it tried to bury them. And indeed, from 1968, when the conflict really burst out, from 1968 to 1972, it does one version of peace journalism. It intervenes right from the decision on, on the news floor, right the way up to the Director General, who's a rather wonderful man actually called Charles Curran, who churns it, first ever Catholic Director General of the BBC. It tries to minimise the conflict. It takes every news story and agonises about it and says, if we put this out, this will lead to more people being killed tomorrow. This is a throughout the Northern Ireland conflict in a way that I think was quite unusual in a highly developed Western society with very, very well-developed structures of democracy, very well-developed structures of the media. Um, journalists lived with a really um, increasingly, particularly by 1972, the worst year of the trouble, an incredibly vivid sense of the responsibility of a bit of journalism. It was believed in government, and there's a wonderful BBC memo that says, who are we to say that's wrong? That, you know, the UDF would be sitting around watching the football, they would see that somebody, there'd been an incident down the road, they would all pick up their arm lights and go out and kill somebody. That's how, it, that's how the reporting felt. You did something and there was a response. And I actually come from a discipline that works on the media, um, and a lot of, of media sociologists have spent, you know, particularly American ones actually, acres of trees, thousands of experiments, years of, of work demonstrating that the media don't have any effects. <laughs> useful corrective, because you always have to put what media effects are in a proper context. Um, you only have to get to Northern Ireland to see that this was obviously patently untrue. It's, but it's not the media that cause things, but they do have effects. So, from 1968 to 72, really, the BBC in Northern Ireland, which did not take this issue privily, um, attempted uh, uh, to, as it were, repress, suppress stories on the grounds that happening, that would produce a, a, a conflict, an immediate response, that something would happen down the road. Would you want to be the person that led to the next blow-up, as it were? It, it was, and this wasn't very successful. Uh, Catholics didn't trust it. And one of the very big things, it seems to me, that the media have to do in any situation, and of course this is ideal, is that in situations where there is daily danger, where there is both a big escalating conflict that you can't see where it's going, you know, there's that level of anxiety, but there's also, can I, can I, can I get my children to school? Will the bus be blown up? Is this road safe? Can I go there? Can I get into work? Um, there's that daily level. Um, rumours um, were far more dangerous than information. Rumours are very incendiary things. Indeed, the media, in a way, are there to stop rumours that's, that's, um, and have to be reinvented. And um, in the period, really, 
early 72 to 74, uh, the BBC takes a deep breath and as you get you get the appointment um, and it's very it's always very difficult it's, you know journalism is also full of individual characters you get the appointment of a remarkable series of journalists who are both pulled up by the conflict I think I'm sure Mike would say any conflict picks up uh, stringers who then become great journalists actually people who really know Afghanistan has led to some you know if you look at David Boyne's wonderful book on Frontline um, a book one of the best books by journalists about reporting there is actually um, Frontline as a set of reporters again you get um, the, the conflict does pull up great characters actually and turns them into remarkable reporters and politicians um, there was an appointment of a set of really remarkable men and women into that newsroom. And the BBC discovers in Northern Ireland um, and then in the mainland that what it has to do is get Catholics to believe it. And the way you do that is by telling the truth about what's happening to them. And you do it by getting the right kind of journalists. You, you do do it by um, getting more Catholic journalists who understand that community into the newsroom. But actually, you do it by terrible day-by-day -day decisions about whether this story is the true story, the accurate story, and how accurate it is. This led to and speed. Now, we're used to thinking that we're faster than everywhere there's ever been. It's very important around news that you understand that everybody's always been on the cusp of speed, and although speed probably has sped up, nevertheless, at the time, um, it felt pretty speedy. And one of the decisions the BBC made, both centrally and on the, on the ground, was that news had to be accurate, but it had to be got out speedily. Um, and as you run into uh, 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 an event that some of you may remember, but uh, a lot of you come from elsewhere, and it was before you were born, but there was a big Protestant strike. The BBC decides that it must tell everybody as speedily as possible um, the accurate news it's got. And of course, at this point, it starts to give news uh, uh, about this big Protestant strike, which is going to shut down Belfast. The government go, the government's been going fissile. It goes extra fissile because it says the BBC, by giving this information out, is actually inciting the strike. Right? So the BBC gets speedy, more accurate information, and the government in London, actually not, un not understandably, governments have different jobs from reporters. The government has a different job from the BBC. Cramps down on it. Um, and starts to blame the BBC in a big way. From 76, the appointment of a remarkable head of news gathering in the BBC, Michael Richard Francis, the appointment of a wonderful man called Robin Walsh, who then actually comes back. You, you may have worked with Robin. I mean, Robin then comes back to London later. And Robin never left anybody in, in any doubt about if they got anything wrong, or indeed if they got anything right. He once said to me, um, newsrooms are not conducive. I can't do the accent, it's a very good accent. Newsrooms are not conducive to good manners, he said. <laughs> um, uh, and the, the BBC, which is already in a difficult place, it was distrusted by one bit of the community, identified with another bit of the community, reporting into that community, but also a national broadcaster. This is a highly difficult set 
to balancing out. In period 76 onwards, um, absolutely um, changes how it reports, but you get another problem. In Northern Ireland, one level of reality is so clear. People understand what's going on very well, they live there. But London, only an hour away on an aeroplane, is a different world. London is also being blown up. The government in London is not there. The government in London, the audiences in Britain, have a very different perception of reality. So the BBC is trying to tell the stories from Northern Ireland back into the centre. And the centre does not like those stories. Um, and by 76, 77, 78, um, an extraordinary coalition of the kind that we live under now is formed, but not so different. It's a coalition of governments and oppositions against the BBC. There's an amazing moment in 76 um, in Mrs Thatcher's uh, first attendance, really, at Privy Council. They don't really talk about anything. They all go off into a huddle and say, what we've got to do is, 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 is grasp the BBC, which is being treacherous and traitorous. Tra traitorous. So the BBC starts to suffer really huge uh, political pressure, which has to survive at the top. Um, now, I'll finish very, 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 very quickly. What do you get from that? You, you get that, as it were, reporting, which is part of the long-term articulation of the interests and circumstances of different groups, is very important. Um, it is very important that people uh, understand that the reality with which they are uh, uh, dealing is reported properly. But if you do that, you also recognise them as different groups with different points of view. That in itself, in my view, is one of the first steps towards, as it were, some kind of political reconciliation. It's understanding the other as being somebody whose circumstances are also explicable and not irrational. It's a very uncomfortable, difficult thing to do um, because it doesn't make you favourable with anybody. You have to talk about the real causes, both the everyday real causes, but you have to, if you can, stand back and look at the long-term, larger arcing causes, which is often very difficult for people, actually journalists in the front line, to do. Um, when Wellington was running the uh, Battle of Waterloo, um, he knew very well what was happening at the front line, but he didn't, he, he stood back on a hill and saw it. And that problem, that really vivid problem, that um, people like Max Hastings have written about very well, actually, about what it is you understand that Mike was talking about from the front, and what it is that that means in a more considered way. It's also a really difficult set of reconciliations, and you have to make judgments all the time about whether the accounts are true. In, um, and the, fi the final thing is it all happens in the context of real events in real time. Pat Lochry, who ended up by being the first ever uh, Roman Catholic head of the BBC in Northern Ireland, uh, again, a wonderful man, um, set up a programme which was called Talkback. And Talkback was hated by all local politicians on the ground, uh, by quite a lot of the churches, and certainly by the government in London, because what you did was you phoned in. And you phoned in, um, frankly, venom. And for about five years, 
and it was, it was very carefully managed. There was an attempt to balance, you know, people were tested and argued back. But basically, um, all of the communities phoned in, and Pat gives a very vivid account of one morning sitting in this thing, you know, there's kind of venom coming in and venom coming in from the other side. People phoned in and shouted at each other and row and scream. Uh, meanwhile, all politicians say, this is really dangerous, it's inciting violence. Uh, actually, the churches say, this is really dangerous, it's inciting violence. And he says there was a morning, there's just a morning, and you suddenly heard um, a UDF person reply to a Catholic. Just reply. And he said, in that moment of replying, they started to listen to each other. But you had to be very strong and put up with what looked like actually a great deal of uh, a, 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 a temperature raising. But that was in the talk show. And that's against, that's against the background of improving the information. So these things always have, as it were, temporal, real historical uh, 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 things that they, they that, that, that are very difficult to calculate. Um, so I think that the most important thing that reporting can do, and I think it's so important that it's the founding block of everything else, and it's not, in a sense, some of the advocates of peace journalists have said, um, and it is actually attempt that enormously demanding task of actually saying why it was that people did things and what they did and what they thought they were doing and what its effects were. That is not easy. That is almost the most difficult thing to do. And it's that is the foundation. And th then the next thing I would add was about three years ago, four years ago now, actually I was part of a, um, a, a committee set up by a parliamentary, what's it, to look into BBC monitoring, and particularly the way in which BBC monitoring, which listens to all the world, whether it could help the Foreign Office pick up conflicts by listening to the words that we used. And actually, these are the times we wanted. The Foreign Office and BBC monitoring, which is an extraordinary thing, wanted a mathematical formula. Really, they wanted a, a, a very nice set of things that the BBC monitoring wouldn't have to make a political decision, but would somehow, there'd been enough hate words, and this would trigger the Foreign Office to sort of put a situation up the alert. You, you, you can see how it's going. And they brought in some Americans and everybody thought we could count and how many of these kind of words and how many. And um, I had to put in a minority report in which I said I thought that was entirely laudable if that's what you wanted to do in order to get out of having to make political decisions. That's fine. But actually it was all irrelevant because the monitor, BBC monitoring service could have told you a long time before the hate words came something much more significant, which was ownership, control, um, disappearance and sacking of journalists, who was the editors, um, who was in control, where the money was going, where the money was coming from. That's to say the structure of the media was as important and much less sexy 
to talk about, but was actually the indicator that would get you to what the system was. So my story about Northern Ireland depends on the BBC being an extraordinary organisation, not perfect, often gets things wrong. Um, Frank Gardner chills us unnecessarily. I'm, I'm, you know, he's a saint, I know, but you know, there you go. Um, uh, but it is, it, it is something that in the long run has remediable, it's transparent, you can see it's got all sorts of deficits, but we should be jolly grateful because it is a structure which is, addresses us as citizens and is capable of resisting some of those pressures. So, so my, my final thought is that in a sense, peace journalism is something or I think responsible journalism, which may not be peaceful at all, um, is something in which you have to attend to the structures of journalism. Um, that, that how things are owned, where the money is going, what the money is being spent on, who's being killed, who's being sacked, who's being appointed, uh, what the audiences are, and these are, these are as true for the new media, as a matter of fact, these, these issues, in a way, of, of <coughs> circulations. Oh, they're old, old issues, really, of circulations and technology and constructions of ownership and how people tell stories, as it were, need to be addressed, as well as the, the more obvious issues, actually, the sexier issues of how we report things. But it's a difficult enough job being an amoral journalist. Don't ask them to um, commit to any ethic, in my view, except the most impossible one, which is to tell the truth in as far as it's possible to ascertain it.